Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and this afternoon we have Mark McKenna who is going to discuss with us his book Return to Uluru published by Black Inc 2021. Mark is a professor of history at the University of Sydney and I would first of all just like to say hello to him. Hi Mark. Hi Bede and um, hello to the, all of the podcasters out there. Thanks for listening. Uh, pleasure. Now, the book itself, uh, it's a, few, a few opening comments about the book before we get into the heart of it. It's a very well-presented book. It's got a um, an amazing cover with this photograph of Uluru from space with this great black contrast throughout, black and red and green. It's it's It looks just amazing. Was that your idea to throw that on the cover? Um, it was my idea. To where was wasn't my idea to have it initially on the cover? The cover, you know, you know as you can imagine, covers are always a but go down to the why, you know, trying to think about well, what's the best image for for the cover of any book. Um, but just at the last minute, we decided to go with that photograph, which was taken of the Larue, which was taken by a French astronaut in 2007 i think um from the space station and it's a remarkable image of uluru because of course our our visual memory of it is very much from ground level unbelievably um that kind of horizontal um you know view of it and seeing it from space it just totally transforms your your impression of the rock and it eerily i think looks a lot like a human heart from the air, <laughs> but um, it's um, so that so we decided at the last minute to put that on. Um, I guess also because a little bit of a different perspective, and people would look at it and go, Well, what is that actually? You know, look, look twice, perhaps. Um, uh, and as for the presentation of the book, um, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's I was really, I feel really fortunate to have had that. Um, production, you know, this quality paper, the images are beautifully, they, they come up really well in the, in, throughout the text. Um, and that's important for me because I tend to write into and out of images. They're not, they're not ornamental in my work, they're, they're part 
of the text, of course, and I'm writing out of them. So, um, and there's a big irony, I suppose, um, about the beauty, the beautiful production of the book. I've got Murray Schwartz and Black Ink, of course, to mm. thank for that. Um, and the content, which is quite horrific. Yes, it is. And that juxtaposition of that beautiful production and the horror of a lot of the content is, um, yeah, it's yeah. just not, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd like to begin with um, part one of the book. It's, it's titled Looking for the Centre. And like so many chapter headings and titles and bits and pieces in this book, there's, there's various ways you can read all these types of sentences, all these types of phrases. And, <laughs> and, I want to, and to add to that, on page four, there's a line on page four, which I circled when I was first reading this book, and it says, perspective is everything. And to me, that just haunts the book. Yeah. Hey, that's a, that's a, you're the first person to, to mention that line, to pick that line out like that. And I, I'm glad. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's true. I Perspective is, of course, not just my, in the book, not just my, the author's perspective, but what I'm trying to do is to, is to write in a way in which the reader finds their own perspective mm. rather than me, me have, you know, laying down the law and saying, well, this, 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 this means this and it, and, and it can only mean that. So I'm, I pull back as much as I can from, from too many overt statements of, over-interpreting, over-judging ju- you know, the material. I want to leave that space for the reader, I guess, to come to their own conclusions. Um, the opening section, I think it's fair to say, has um, it was written in ten, of course, to be read. I was hoping that it could be read in different ways, that... Some people have said, oh, is it ironic? Um, some people have said, is it sentimental? <laughs> is it, is it um, romantic? Is it this? Is it that? Um, I mean, part of the reason I start the book trying to write about what the centre means in Australian imagination. Yes. Today, today. Yes, yes, the book does. Um, is because my subject who's a policeman, was part of that, the emergence of that myth of the centre. He was caught up in it himself. And I'm, if this is an outsider in perspective, I'm from, as many Australians are, from this corner of the continent, and I have not spent a long time in Central Australia. Um, So my view, my perspective is very much from the urban southeast corner into the centre of the country. As it was for me, the the first explorers who came from that corner, Adelaide, up north. And so I wanted to capture what that, that part of Australia, the emotional as well as the intellectual, landscape for Europeans over time in about 14 or 15 pages. So, um, and Uluru, 
where the book is set, really, and where the shooting that I describe and write about and unpack is happened in 1934. Uluru, of course, has become, you know, the, the spirit, the spiritual land of Australia. Yes. And quite, re you know, quite recently, and I wanted to show how I wanted to, I guess, in, draw the reader in to that to that whole territory and space at the start. And what I hope <laughs> is, and it built out, but what I hope is the reader can see that so many of those traditional ideas about central Australia are overturned by the history that's taken place there and what I write about subsequently. Yes. I think and they I all come to... I was just going to say, Mark, it would be. I think it'd be good here if you were able to just explain a little bit about the the story itself. We've got Bill Bill McKinnon and Yokuuna. I think that's. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. Yokuuna. Yokuuna. Both both are, are dead now, but one died a lot earlier than he perhaps should have. Can you um, explain the just fill in the background of what the books, the story, the books telling, and what. And that would actually, I think, assist with this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's obviously important for everyone listening. Um, so, without giving the gun away, mm. <laughs> because um, I'm hoping um, people will read uh, the book. Um, yeah, so in 1934, um, a policeman by the name of Bill McKinnon was sent out to investigate the killing of an Aboriginal man about 80 kilometres from Uluru. Now, as he subsequently discovered, that Aboriginal man killed under tribal law, so, um, and he was subsequently discovered the men, the Aboriginal men who killed him had used a rifle, um, and Aboriginal people at the time were not under white man's allowed to possess firearms, which meant the police got involved, the white people got involved. He arrested six men for that, for the murder of that Aboriginal man, and he, under great, you know, using all sorts of brutal forms of intimidation, expressions from them, and the morning after he did that, six of those men that he'd arrested escaped and they fled towards Uluru and he chased them with his trackers across country until he cornered four of them. He re-arrested, managed to re-arrest two of them along the way, but he cornered four of them at Uluru and one of them in a cave near Mitajulu waterhole at Uluru. And Technically, under the white man's law, as he often claimed, he was trying to apprehend prisoners, escaped prisoners, who had um, yeah, escaped from his custody and who were arrested. This one man, Nokonana, he cornered in a cave and demanded, of course, you know, to come out, uh, to hand himself in. He refused to do that. And he fired into the cave, into the cave, and fatally wounded Yokonano. 
and dragged out of the cave where he claimed, claimed that Yokona died a few hours later from his wounds. Six months later, there was a Commonwealth Board of Inquiry, Australian Government Board of Inquiry, into the shooting. You know, it's important to understand why. In a way, the inquiry itself is a bit of a turning point um, in that it shows the government is extremely sensitive about um, Aboriginal mistreatment of Aboriginal people, certainly, you know, international condemnation of treatment of Indigenous people. Becoming increasingly sensitive to that internal criticism, and also the um, urban centres of Australia as well. Um, and there were questions. It's a long story, but it's explained in the book. But but the board of inquiry was set up that shooting, and six months later went up, and with Bill McKinnon, the policeman, leading the way, showing the inquiry cross country showing them where the event happened, even cooking the whole party at dinner and breakfast uh, every day. Um, so the man they were investigating was actually with them all the way, which was an unusual form of inquiry. And they dug Yokonana's remains up in Uluru, and they took the remains back to Alice Springs as evidence. The inquiry found that shooting by Bill McKinnon of Yokonana was legally justified but unwarranted. Legally justified but unwarranted. Mm. So essentially McKinnon was penalised with a, I think he lost his uh, salary, regular salary increment um, that year and otherwise he was found guilty of bashing some a couple of original men at Hermansburg. Um, but really, in terms of the shooting itself, he was exonerated. Um, so I hope that... So that's the, the bare outline of the story. Um, there's a lot more that I won't... I mean, I could just keep talking about it if you want. <laughs> no, I think but, it's best to leave it for the reader because it's, it's, um, it's a bit like a... For the way I experienced it, was a bit like that that novel, although it's not a novel. That novel, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It's a real inquiry. It's a re- it takes you on a journey and just weaves in so much culture and history and places and people that it's it, it just develops so well the book. And I think it's worth. I mean, you know, how often do you say a history book can have a have spoilers in it? But <laughs> well, that's. Know. Yeah, that's that's. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm pleased that you you found that when you were reading it. Um, I think it is a bit of a departure for me in the sense that, um, I mean, I was striving for those novelistic elements in the writing. I was striving for the. I wanted the the power of the story to pull people along, and and to try and capture the sense that I had when I was writing it that. That, that the whole thing just kept unfolding. Every time I thought that I, I had, you know, discovered everything I could, um, it just kept unfolding. I discovered more and more and more. Mm. Now there are a few. I want to. The way I, I think I might ask ask you a few more questions 
rather than about the story itself so much, more about some of the themes and some of the ways in which the book's presented, because I'm sure you can fill out a lot of the history around that without giving too much away from the story itself. Yeah. The first is when the one of the achievements of this book is the photo, the photography, and you've already mentioned that, and the sense, and I, I expect this was intentional, but I like your comment on it, the sense that the photographs actually brought the reader to the place where the book, where at the, the time and the place. And uh, there's, there's two photos, there's two, I mean, there's lots of photos, but there's two I would just really like you to comment on to start with. When people start turning up at Alice Springs in the 1930s, you've got this photo of Kath Rice and Kit Robinson's cafe. This is Alice Springs and it's just, it's just, it's nothing. It's just a, yeah. it's just a shack. And then there's yeah. also, and in contrast to that, it almost shows the there's these beautiful photos of the Todd River at Alice Springs with these that look like ghost gums in the riverbank. Yeah. And you can yeah. it's black and white, but it's a real silver gelatine type photo. And you can almost see the, you can just, you can sense that lime green of those gum leaves in the sun in it. And it just shows the contrast that the, back then nature itself was the, was the place that almost more desirable than the shack cafe in the town. Um, thanks, Pete. That's uh, really great to hear your, you know, what you've what you've seen in those two photographs. Um, and you know, Bill McKinnon, our policeman, um, was was a photographer, very very keen photographer. And um, he took he arrived in Alice Springs in um, the early 1930s, uh, in the middle of the depression, and uh, he'd been a policeman in Papua. New Guinea and Rabaul, he'd been a jail warden, he'd done all sorts of things, but he also um, was very keen to document visually through photography um, his exploits as a policeman on patrol in Central Australia. And he used some of the early self-timers, for example, um, took taking photographs of himself at the top of Uluru, which is also mm. in the another remarkable image where he's you know, climbed up to the top of the rock and it's it's rained recently and and he, he gets up to the top 1932 it's, it's of course stinking hot he strips off jumps in the water in a rock pool at the top of the rock and then sets up a self climber to take a photo of himself I mean so I was I've in a past life I was also I had dreams of being a photographer and you know I had a couple of exhibitions in Sydney and uh, I, I guess visual the visual photo, photographs either from the subjects that I'm working with or my own photograph play a big role in um, anchoring me into a story or allowing me to see things that I might not have seen otherwise so I I think visually, uh, and and my writing's tied up with that. I think, and so that in, on that level alone, you know, McKinnon was an attractive figure to me because, um, or no, attractive is not the right word. He was um, an intriguing um, figure, um, and so some of those images that he took, you know, of Cat of the cafe in Alice Springs that they're just, as you say, there's nothing, you know, that they really capture what it was like at the time. Um, this it kind of, it's very much like the, uh, the you know, and, and this and 
was used often at the time by white settlers, the wild, Australia's wild west, mm. you, know, um, you know, tumbleweed and, and a few buildings and dirt and dust and and uh, and there and also you know rice and uh, or kid rice and cattle. What was it again? <laughs> yeah, um, turn the page over, Cat Richardson or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you you think oh, I'd love to know more about those two women and and their lives there at that time in the early 30s um, and the photograph they're leaning on on one of the at the front I think um, yes. on a post um, and you can just sort of imagine it's that kind of photo that you can imagine your way that world through it um, and start asking all sorts of questions um, so yeah that was another I, I think it was I was really pulled along by McKinnon's, um, by his photography as well. Yeah. And another con- another photographic contrast I would just like you to comment on, it's a map and photo contrast. There's a map that you have, and I'm going to ask you in a second about the travels these policemen did, but first I want to ask you, you have a few maps that show the area because it's, mm. it's a massive area, Uluru's tucked away in the southwest of the Northern Territory and you've got the... Charlotte Waters Railway Station and Alice Springs, and it, it's a it, it, the area, the size of it's incredible. Then you have this photo. I think you might have taken it. Is it? Well, maybe I'm wrong, but Central Australia from the air, 2012. It's yeah, that that photograph is incredible, isn't it? That that was taken by a good friend of mine, Ockett Meyer, um, in Canberra, uh, sometime some years ago. And um, when I was writing the book, um, he showed me some of the. And he just stood up, you know, in the plane that was flying over Central Australia. I think he was flying from Singapore um, down to Sydney. And, um, yeah, he just, you know, was up the back of the plane, pointed his camera up the, the back window uh, near the loose at the back of the poor jumbo. And um, uh, that's what came out. And there's, that. I wish I'd had space for some of the other photos that he took, but it's an extraordinary image, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Um, again, it gives like like the photo of Uluru on the cover from space. It gives you a, a very different. It's got a, it's, it captures the fluidity. There's, there's a there's a sort of it's the swirling kind of. Yeah, it's like a Fred Williams painting or something. I don't know. It's a, yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it's a it's a kind of. Deliberate contrast to to the maps, which of course um, yeah, very different. The maps had that real that very much British schoolroom aspect to them, and then you got the, the real images there. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and it kind of you know again it shows how the European way of of real of reeling the country in, so to speak, mm. uh, renders it. Much in a much more rigid and form through mapping, and it misses the yeah, it misses so much. Yes. Now the next thematic question concerns if you could describe these these policemen. So um, the Bill Bill himself to me has a sort of has a, a movie star look about him. He's just he, he he really does. And when you read the the if well, I've driven out to Uluru through through, through South through South Australia. So 
having experienced the country for a few days, it's when you hear that these there was one policeman in in Bill's case, he sort of had the area from south of Alice Springs down to the South Australian border almost, and he's had to go trekking on camels for days on end. Can you can that? is just un- seems unimaginable it just seems so lawless even though he's i suppose he's the law it's but it really it has that real cinematic western as you said earlier western quality of just the man with the, the with the tin star riding around on his camel running yeah. running the show and his and his aboriginal tractor yeah yeah, yeah i was going to ask you what yeah. was there what was how did they Carbon. work together well essentially i mean from the very outset um McKinnon was entirely dependent on his trackers, as every policeman was, once they left so-called town of Alice. Um, they, were, they were completely dependent on Aboriginal trackers because uh, that was how they, they found their way, that was how they, they hunted food for, for sustenance and, and survival, that was how they found water. So um, they were completely dependent on them. And McKinnon had, had says as much in, in his journals. You know, he talks mm. about his dependence on the trackers. Um, and, yeah, so, the, I mean, he was responsible for 25,000 square kilometres. <laughs> Patrolling 25, he had the southwest camel patrol. Right? Yeah. And one other policeman had the northwest camel patrol. So you can imagine uh, he was... Look, he was both the law in the European, in European eyes, and he was a law in a sense that he was isolated. There was no, no one was watching him, so to speak. Um, so he was a law unto himself as well as the law itself. Mm. It seems to have been a brutal, a brutal world whenever he came along. There's references in the book to him bashing a dog's brain out with a a tire lever and shooting dogs and whipping people and putting neck chains on and violent it just seems as the violence how did how would you describe the violence that occurred yeah i tried to grapple with that um at one point in the book where i admit my own sort of in, incomprehension just sort of disbelief at just how violent world was and it's less than a century ago some people still alive in australia it's uh within living them um so it's not that long ago um and yes he, I mean, he was a man who was capable of violence in fits of rage i think um i mean i think the shooting of yokonana was one example of that because mckinnon was angry that those men escaped his custody. He was embarrassed that they had um, they'd got the better of him. They, they'd uh, they'd slipped their locks and, and chains and, and, and got away. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason that he was determined to to make them pay. Um, and this was a world which, as I say, you know that. In which the white fella look simply dropped, literally. I mean, as Sammy Wilson, who's one of the senior custodians of Little Roo today, and who's the grand nephew of Yokonana, who was shot, said to me, you know, the white fella came 
and the white fella put up the fences, and then it was there. Land was there. Mm. And when you when you stop for a moment and you think about that from the Aboriginal perspective, you can see their own. You can, you can comprehend. There's a disbelief and incomprehension. Then slowly dawning on, you know, as it became clear, the white man putting up those fences and way. Um, what what this was meaning for for the survival of culture and people. Corruption, corruption cause. So it's a very very violent world in which whites simply believed that they had the right to assert themselves by any military over the indigenous population. And especially because they were vulnerable, they were outnumbered, they were anxious about the fact that there were more Aboriginal people in Central Australia than there were um, white settlers. Mm. So it, and it, you know, it, 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 because we've imagined this place, Uluru, and Central Australia. Um, reimagined it, if you like, but more lately, away from those images of a harsh, unforgiving, desolate, you know, no inland sea, no useless place, um, to a kind of a much more nurturing, spiritual reimagining of, of the country. But we've kind of divorced the, the brutal reality of the way that country was settled from our quite romantic image that we have of the centre today. Yes, that's, that 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 comes true, and um, along those, and one of the things which I wanted to ask about is this cave where this person was shot. When you, when I visited Uluru, I mean, I must have walked past it, but there's is there any is there any memorial? Is there anything there that you could go to and say, well, this is where this happened? No, in fact, and that's intentional, of course. Um, so most of the interpretive panels around, pretty much all of them actually, around Uluru are, you know, cultural and telling selectively certain aspects of the, the, the dreaming stories and Jukapa, the law, um, to all white tourists, or for tourists, full stop, right? Mm. Um, and so there is no mention of shooting at the cave, but... When I was there just before the book came out, or yeah, six months before the book came out, which was the last time I was there, um, a couple of senior Aboriginal custodians said, maybe it's time now for this to be actually formally acknowledged on the rocks. Because it's, of course, it's a story that, um, through, through an interpretive panel or something like that, it's a story that, of course, that they've told and down the years from the 1930s through to the current day mm. and long been fully aware of but there were still aspects of the story that they weren't aware of because um, they weren't aware for example that McKinnon had lived till his 90s and that um, McKinnon had actually um, returned to the rock um, in his 80s as a tourist <laughs> um, and also they weren't aware of some of the evidence that I put in McKinnon's daughter's garage in Brisbane. And that's another story itself. And it's got yes. a book 
So, um, yeah. Uh, and when you it. when you put a book like this together, how it seems that you must have actually had to actually find. There's no archive for a lot of this stuff. You've actually got to find people who have knowledge of things, who who or have heard things in the past. How was what was that process? Well, um, there's some documented um, evidence of the stories that Aboriginal people have told about the shooting. Though so, um, in books by anthropologists, uh, Robert Layton, for example. Um, his book about Uluru had recorded some of the stories uh, about the shooting. Also, Barry Hill, um, uh, the Australian author, poet, writer, um, he, his book Uluru, The Rock, I should say, The Rock, um, also included stories. Um, there's local uh, material where those stories are also documented. There's films where they're documented. Mm. Yeah, you have a, actually. There's a good reference you have to a, U, a YouTube clip of one of the um, Aboriginal people talking about this, which was quite good. Oh, good. Yeah, you saw. You did. You get a chance to see that, did you? Yeah, that that's um, remarkable footage because mm. it was one of the men who was chased, you know, who'd escaped arrest and um, custody, and uh, he was one of the four men who McKinnon had chased to Uluru. And he was the, he is the, the only surviving, or was the only surviving, he's definitely but the only surviving witness who told the story at, with such incredible detail. And um, David Batty, the filmmaker, filmed Joseph Donald, as his name is, telling that story in 1986, but it didn't go up on YouTube until 2017. Um, but it's 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 so it's such a rich um, and important um, testimony that although it was filmed in 1986 because it, it it's only appeared in recent years hasn't been part of uh, at least as far as the white pillar uh, history is concerned hasn't been part of this shooting history through the shooting until until my book. Eventually, um, so it was. It was wonderful to have that um, footage of Joseph Donald um, telling the story from his perspective, um, and of course he claims that McKinnon uh, demanded of Yokonana to tell him where the others were, because Yokonana mm. that he shot him. So it's a very different account one that McKinnon gives. Yes, now McKinnon clears out of the area in about, I think it's the late 50s or early 60s, he retires. Early 60s, he retires. Wins the New South Wales Lottery, yeah, and retires, yeah. And back to Queensland, he goes back to Queensland, I think. Yeah, goes back and lives in Budrum in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And then the, the book has another side of it, which is, it's weaved through it, but it's talking about the the cultural history of the rock, not so much from the indigenous point of view, but from the white person's point of view, the, yeah. the chain. And, and can you talk about some of those those aspects of the, the two rising, of making the rock into a, a, instead of, I think somewhere in the book it's referred to as a, for the indigenous people, it's like their cathedral almost. I think you refer to, you compare it to chart or something, but then in another, and it, but for the, for, for 
anyone else, it becomes sort of a just a something to tick off on the wish list and a bit of a tourist attraction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, mean, I think you can, though it started as early as the 1930s, I mean, it didn't really seriously tourism get, get underway until, um, you know, 1950s, 1960s, um, and you find certain white fella mediators, interpreters like Bill Harney, who takes tour groups out to the rock, um, and others like Len Chewett, who did the same, they start to, to more and more people start to arrive. And then, but of course, by the early 80s, you, you've got um, Qantas flying mm. uh, people. Yeah. So, what had happened after the shooting was that um, the Ananu had stayed for what from Uluru after, between the 1930s and, say, mid 50s. And they didn't really return. And one of the things that um, drew them back was the, the influx of white fellows who, who were, um, many of whom were, you know, desecrating their sacred sites as well. Um, and Aboriginal people started to live off the tour economy. Um, and the more and more it expanded, um, the more the demands for the return of Uluru to its traditional owners increased. And by the mid 1980s, um, that that was able to to happen when the Hawke government um, facilitated the handback of Uluru to the Ananu, and uh, that was 1985 uh, when Uluru was handed back. After 85, I mean, it, it then I think it's the period from the early 80s through to the current day. So the last 40 years, essentially, where the, the rock really then starts to become something else entirely um, in the national imagination through tourism, advertisements, through the increased respect for indigenous culture that was slowly um, creeping through the whole of Australian society, it changed the attitude towards the rock and the way it was seen um, and to visit a place now where you saw recently the, the, the climb of the rock was mm. um, finally ended after much debate on and off over many years and the chain the chain that had helped people to ascend the rock which was actually put there fixed um, and there was a book at the top of the rock where people left their comments um, from the mid-60s. That's another interesting thing is that, you know, they people left their comments at the top of the rock, but very few of them in the 60s, 70s, early 80s even mentioned the Aboriginal associations of the rock. It was all about, it was all white fellas climbing the rock and leaving sort of inane comments like, where's the beer, you know, <laughs> yeah. Why did I bother climbing this rock? Um, so, in the history, of, you, know, it's, it, you look at the rock now and you go and you can see the imprint of those tourists, um, uh, which the Ananu call Minja, I think, ants, that, that describe them as ants, and literally you can see the imprint on the rock of the presence of those footsteps over many years and the indentation. The, the chain um, 
and that's a relatively brief period. It's a bit the nanosecond in Uluru's history, but mm. it's had a big impact on on um, yeah, it's had a, it's had a big impact. I mean, physically, you can still see the imprint, of, and that will take years to disappear. Mm. But it's it's um, again, it's 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 really interesting that um, for so long. Uluru was not seen, was somehow divorced from Australia's frontier history, as if it was, it, it was as if its role was just to be this iconic spiritual sort of red icon out there in the desert, and um, it was somehow separate from from Australia's brutal foundation when it wasn't. Yeah, I was just... not only that. You know that the shooting occurred inside Uluru. Yeah, it's amazing. It's actually in the in in a cave inside it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The um uh, one thing I was going to ask you is, uh, on this theme is Uluru is this place you can go and you can stay in the if you like in the the resort with air conditioning and overpriced bistros and all the rest of it. And Mm. And you can also, if you drive those through, up through Port Augusta up to the centre, mm. the contrast of it, so Uluru might have this nice, beautiful aspect to it, so well cared for, but the way in which some of the Indigenous people have to live in those towns between, say, Port Augusta and the centre is um, there's just so much more that needs to be done, it seems to me, to these to these people living in these environments. Yes, and, and also that's where this history is so important because the laws that that were, you know, caused or, or framed the, the context in which such a shoot could take place in 34, those laws that were imposed, those whole all those structures that were imposed on Aboriginal people in Central as they were else in the country, are still the the they're still being imposed. They're still being legislated, drawn up, you know, policies with very little consultation. Of not, to, there are exceptions to that, increasingly, fortunately. But the, the general point is that the legacy of that um, conquest of country is still, and the, the the failure to seriously negotiate with. Indigenous people, as it uh, is, is still a bridge that, that our governments have have to cross, mm. and that's why that's why um, people such as Samuel Uluru um, were signatories to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, which called for a voice to Parliament that would be enshrined in the Constitution of Australia. So that there could be no more doubt that Indigenous Australians would be guaranteed a voice in all legislation that was created um, and impacted uh, their lives. Mm. Well, we have actually Me- Megan Davis is coming on this this podcast oh. in a couple of episodes to talk about her book. And oh, good. Yeah. Good. So- Oh, that's good. Well, say hi to Megan for me. <laughs> yeah, and a couple more questions, Mark, just to, to yeah. finish up. One is, um, 
there's a photo. I imagine it's you with a, a sort of a, a low rise tent and a campfire sitting on your knees out in the desert somewhere. In- that's um, that's a good friend of mine. Um, that's at the front of the book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That photograph. We were camping on the fringe of the Simpson Desert, and um, Edwin Edwin Rise, who was a good friend of mine and who travelled with me to Central Australia, right? Because he he knew the country and had lived um, uh, around there for for some years. Um, we travelled together, and um, he was someone whose knowledge of the country I relied on, especially initially, and I could not have done what I did without him. Right. And uh, it was a great um, disappointment uh, that he he died tragically um, early this year from cancer. Um, huh. And uh, so he, he couldn't see, he never saw the book. Um and um, yeah, he was relatively young and so on. But anyway, that, that photograph, Edwin was a great camper. Yeah, well, I was going to say it looks like he. Well, I thought was this a, some sort of stock? This couldn't be a publisher's stock photo because it looks. <laughs> no. And then I noticed on the side, there's he, he must be a pretty good camper because there's actually a bottle of red wine on top of a box in the background. Right. And I thought, ah. I'm pleased you noticed the bottle of red wine. You need these um, these small comforts when. <laughs> Occasionally, mm-hmm. when you're out there, um, and we always enjoyed we had at least uh, a glass or two at night around the campfire. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Edwin. Edwin was someone who reminded me that uh, at a point in writing the book where I I had so much information on McKinnon, my policeman, but I had very little Yokonana. Um, I mean, to flesh out his person. And, who he was and character and Edwin reminded me that well you can't really understand Yokonana unless you you can understand him through the whole with his his kin and his cultural connections and his family right and and that's very true where in the white fellow way you ask you think about someone's individuality differently I think um, and the way they sit within culture very differently, understandably. So, yeah. Um, mm. Okay. Yeah, miss, I miss having him here. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the last section, part four, has this line, and I wanted to ask you about this 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 line at the start where it says, "Truth disappears with history," and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, "Does it? Are you imagine it doesn't mean truth just disappears with with the passing of time because that would just be disappear." Well, is that based upon the idea of whoever actually writes the history can control in the future times how people think about the past? Yes. Um, I mean, it's one of it's Michael Ondaatje and, um, of course, deliberately enigmatic. Um, I mean, to me, and in the context of this story, it, it shows how... how you can never assume when there were, there were many points where it was assumed that we knew everything about this story, that we knew all we could know. And then more, more and more was revealed and there was much more to find out. Mm. And even now there are still truths that you can't reach. You can never get the whole, right. the whole picture. 
and history, in a sense, all history is grasping after, is trying to approach, is trying to get as close as possible to understanding part worlds which can never be completely covered. And mm. the full truth of history, the full truth of it, simply can't be retrieved. No. Um, and even if you were there, you still might, I bet there'd be a debate about what was... Well, this is right. We can't assume that the people who were there at the time knew what was going on either. <laughs> In the sense that, you know, we, if you, I mean, yes, you, it, it's, uh, you need, you need, the, your sources are so important. Yeah, your sources mm. are so important. Um, yeah, that applies today as much as looking at the past as well, of course. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Mark. That's been a great conversation. Oh, thanks, Pete. No, so thanks for the questions. They're really, they're really, um, really different, and and you know, it's interesting to hear your perspective on the book. So thank That's you. That's good. And and what are you up to these days? Have you got another book in the works? Well, I signed a contract recently to write a history of Australia, which you believe, short history of Australia. The whole, the whole, the whole thing. Well, the whole thing, but not. That's the thing. I don't want to write a kind of chronological run through because I think that that's been done so many times, and I would get bored doing that. So I've got to find a way. Of, I've got to find a way of doing it where I can find windows into the. I can. It's more going to be present centred. Why history matters now, and what Australian history. What is it about Australian history that we need to know now? Um, that's the way I'm going to approach it. I think. Yeah. Excellent. I will look forward to that. Now, for everyone out there, Mark McKenna, Return to Uluru, published by Black Ink. If you'd see it in the bookstore, you will not be able to walk past the cover. It stands out. If you want to get a, have a nice historical read that takes you on a bit of a journey, this is perfect. And once again, Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Pete. It's been a pleasure. No trouble. I will speak to you later. Okay, uh, have a good afternoon. Thank you very much. See you. Bye. Bye.